All right, it looks like uh, we're live. We're back, LinkedIn Live, Brent Leary. It's been a little while, I guess, since I did one of these, but it's been even more than a little while since I spoke with who you see right next to me on the screen right now. That's Layla Seika. I first met Layla, gosh, it must be like five, six, seven, maybe longer years uh, when she was heading up things at desk.com for Salesforce. And she recently left Salesforce. And then she recently, even more recently, started as a partner with Operator Collective. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff. But first of all, it's December 23rd and she's joining me. You know, this is like Christmas time. People are like, you know, buying stuff. And she's taking time to speak with me. So, Layla, it's great to see you again. I love you, Brent. I'd always make time to see you. You're one of the few people that no matter what time of year it is, I always want to talk to you. <laughs> the only thing I regret is that it's 2019 and we haven't been to Waffle House yet. I know. It really needs to happen. Next time I'm in Atlanta, we're doing it. Now, yeah, and Waffle House, boy, we had a lot of good talks about that place. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of good talks, but next time we have to do a lot of talking at Smothered covered you know all that kind of stuff anyway exactly. all right <laughs> so you i just we were just talking before we started the linkedin live thing and this is like your first dream force that you weren't at you know salesforce in what 11 years yep that it was, was interesting i was telling you um in the beginning of the week, I sort of got sad. Like I was sort of snapping at my husband and like snapping <laughs> at my kids a bit. And my husband was like, you okay? Is everything okay? Um, and I did, I missed everyone, right? It's sort of, I was telling you earlier, it's sort of like when you graduate from college or something, or you graduate, you go off to college. Like um, I grew up with everyone at Salesforce. It's like my family. So beginning of the week, I sort of was like, oh, I can't believe I'm not there and all this kind of stuff. And then um, halfway through the week, I just sort of shifted and started feeling wildly proud again of everything we did at Salesforce and all the things we built there and watching all these amazing people succeed. So it turned halfway through, but yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting feeling. <laughs> so as I mentioned, you, know, you uh, just recently, at least, at least on my radar, it looks like you just recently became a partner at this uh, thing called Operator Collective. What exactly is Operator Collective? Operator Collective is awesome. Um, so my, <laughs> let me start with that. Um, my friend Malin, who's my partner as well, began Operator Collective. So the idea really started with the fact that a lot of women and underrepresented minorities were not involved in venture. Um, and there's a lot of you know side hustle going on around venture. Like when I worked at Salesforce, we acquired a number of companies um, and we brought their awesome founders over with us. And then those founders would stay for a couple of years and then often they'd leave and many of them became venture capitalists. And when they left, we I noticed they were like calling the male executives and hey, invest in my fund or hey, angel invest in this company or, and, and they weren't really calling the female executives um, wow. or anyone else. Uh, so I got cut into one of these eventually, like a friend brought me in and I started realizing it was a whole additional income stream that, um, they were getting access to, not all of them, but a lot of them. And, um, you know, I've been notorious for equal pay for many, many years. I think I always will be. I hope I always will I be. I hope so. Um, yeah, I intend to be until my last breath. I'm going to be talking <laughs> about this. Um, but uh, it, it felt like another income in disparity, right? Another area where we're like, and also if 
you know, we, we want different types of companies, right? Like we're all sort of chomping at the bit for a company that represents the society we live in and not just the upper wealthy classes. Um, and if we really want that, then we need to let different types of people invest and create new companies. So Malin had sort of created the framework of this and had begun to get some initial investors and she was working on that. And then after I left Salesforce, we were friends and I was already involved. We got, we got much more closer involved. Um, and then it became a really interesting project where we're, most venture funds don't have over a hundred limited partners, right? And, and, and most venture funds certainly don't tell you who their limited partners are. Um, we went about it in a much different way because the limited partners inside of Operator Collective are all operating executives. Um, now, we recruited out of our network, so it happens to be 90% women, 40% people of color. You know, it, It's a more well-rounded network than your typical VC network tends to be. Um, but what we found so interesting about that is all of these, we, we surveyed our population of LPs and we found that 56% um, of them had never invested before, you know, and um, when we, yeah, a very high number for the, these women and men are the people like running unicorns and running giant divisions at huge companies. So 56% of them had never invested before. And when we asked why, over 75% said, no one ever asked me. Wow. 75%. And these are like you're saying, these are people who have done some tremendous, outstanding things in their career, have tons of experience and were never asked before. Yep. I mean, to be fair, I was only asked like four years ago and partially because I was having a fit about it. Right. Like I was yelling about it and like, why am I not being asked? And so like um, so that really that that metric for me was very humbling because it sort of completely validated the thesis that Malin and I were running at that we weren't really being asked to the dance ever. Right. Um, so 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 that was a real a big principle of it was to get operating executives into venture to get them thinking about the next companies, advising the next companies, helping the next companies, but also understanding that most operating executives are so busy they can't breathe. So creating a framework that allowed them to engage in a way that made sense to them, right? But didn't put any kind of force on them to do anything they didn't have time for. So what's been, and I just saw recently, congratulations are in order because recently uh, you guys raised $45 million or you you, you opened with a, a chest of $45 million. I think you were the, the target was only 30 and you got 45 million. So that's gotta feel pretty good. Yeah, that was awesome. I mean, Malin deserves a huge amount of the credit there. My partner, Malin, she is absolutely phenomenal when it comes to getting people fired up about the mission. But yeah, we raised over what we thought, um, which is very exciting and, and also very validating. Um, and now, you know, we've started, we've already made some investments. Our investment thesis is focused on business to business SaaS, which is another difference, right? I, I will be honest with you. I'm sort of new to venture capital, but I was very surprised in my first run out how many people started asking me to invest in their lipstick companies, which is funny because I don't wear any makeup, like none. <laughs> the only time I ever wear makeup is when like Salesforce or someone else like puts it on me. Otherwise I don't wear makeup, like not my jam. So I was like, wow, I'm really not your target here. Like go to someone that wears lipstick and ask them to invest in your lipstick company. Um, but it does sort of show the bias that exists inside of venture right now that is like, female venture capitalists invest in cosmetics or consumer types of companies. Um, 
And, and I think that's great. By all means, invest in what you believe in. But I don't know anything about lipstick. But I know a lot about B2B SaaS. I mean, I built the app exchange. Like, I know a lot about that. Your experiences, oh, I've been uh, with Salesforce, uh, you know, 11 plus years. I've worked with several big tech companies as part of that. I've helped build big tech. And lipstick is the first thing that comes to mind. That's it's interesting. It just sort of shows, right? A lot of this, and these aren't bad people, right? They're excited, but like it just, there's a lot of bias built into the way all of us function. Me too. I'm not saying I'm perfect by any means. We all have right. tons of work to do. Um, but yeah. it was interesting to me. I was very like, hmm, that's so strange. Like, don't you want to talk to me about like really deep enterprise B2B, like gnarly business problems? Like, <laughs> lipstick <laughs> yeah that's so do you see uh that how does that perception change is this what you guys are doing is this like one of the first steps in showing uh hey this kind of talent that that you guys have put together we can do as well as anybody else in tech and enterprise tech in the cloud not just things that are traditionally viewed through you know a different lens yeah, and actually I see there are a lot of funds coming online right now, women-led funds that are doing something similar, Moxie by Katie Stanton, Teresa just started a fund, and then Eileen Lee always, always had Cowboy Ventures. There have been, the interesting thing about what's happening in venture right now is there have been like All Rays, Aileen, Hashtag Angels, there have been a number of women that came before and started sort of you know, paving the pathway for other types of people to enter venture. So I believe it's been going on. And a lot of those are investing in heavy B2B tech too, right? It's not, um, I just, the lipstick example is more to show how biases are built into the way we all think about, you know, investors and operators and companies and interests and stuff like that. So, um, I mean, look, it, We've, we've invested in a lot of really great B2B tech that I'm super proud of, right? From Ironclad, which is going to change the way a lot of legal services are run, through to Guild and Rachel Carlson, who is just phenomenal and makes all of us, you know, sort of yay for the future. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, we find ourselves in a lucky position, too, where we have a lot of support inside of the Valley. Um, I, I sort of got all this advice from people like, oh, it's really cutthroat and venture and no one's going to help you and you got to fight for this and that. Um, and, and, you know, it's early days, but that's not what I found at all. So I've found a lot of warmth, a lot of we're excited you're in this, Layla. How can we help you? Do you want to learn about this? Come to this, come to that, um, which has also been very affirming, right? It was very nice to see how much support we got as we launched the fund from so many different people people and from a lot of people that I guess folks would say we were competitive with, although I don't see it that way. Um, it's been a really positive experience and I'm, I'm very fired up about that. All right. Let me, let me throw a two, a couple of com comments that have come in. Uh, this one is good for you and not so good for me. But, uh, Esteban Kolsky, our buddy, oh. he does say, uh, this is an awesome combo of smarts and beauty. And then he says, and Brent. So, <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, Bill Patterson, oh. uh, this is cool. two of my favorite people. Can't wait to hear the session. So there it is. Well, with Bill, it's already going. So <laughs> they're both great people. I mean, again, it shows like sort of what we were talking about, Brent. Like there's a great community of people inside of Silicon Valley supporting each other and helping each other. We need to raise that up more so the rest of the country and the rest of the world sees that too. 
Let me ask you, because, you know, you you've been a pioneer. I mean, you've been a pioneer on, you know, what you were doing at Salesforce, in, you know, building enterprise applications. Uh, where would you say, you know, if you if you kind of looked at what you've done at Salesforce and kind of the progression of seeing more and more women get opportunities to be uh, leaders in these kind of tech companies and enterprises. Where in terms of kind of that spectrum do you see uh, what's going on with, you know, gender and diversity from the investment side of the house? Is it how many years is it behind where you you were as a tech enterprise executive at a, a company like Salesforce? Well, Salesforce really was leading edge, right? I mean, I, I've always said this about Salesforce. I've never seen a company that was trying harder to do the right thing. I really haven't. Um, so, you know, I was lucky to work at a company like that for so long. So I'll definitely say that. Look, venture's a bit behind, right? I, I mean, I think it's a little behind. I can't exactly qualify or quantify how much. But you can see from the influx of change that Operator Collective is bringing to the table, as well as a lot of these other female and underrepresented minority-led funds, when you see this much activity boiling up, this many people sort of engaging in a new way of thinking about a problem, you can tell that there's a there there, right? So I think I think venture has been you know a little behind, and I think now that because of a lot of the good work of organizations like All Raise and all of these types of places, which said, hey, women have a spot here, underrepresented minorities have a spot here, um, we're starting to see a shift now. Shifts take a while, right? I, I, they, they, in the moment, they never feel like they're happening fast enough. And over a lifetime, you're amazed at how much happened, right? But so, so that continues to be sort of where we see ourselves. But again, I am seeing this network of women and underrepresented minorities in venture. And, and from our launch, at least, what an amazing reception and, and how kind everyone was and deal flow and advice and meet this founder, meet this person. Like, it's been very welcoming for a, a you know a business that I was told was very competitive and sort of cutthroat. So I think the shift is beginning, but but we're in early days still. All right, what's been the most surprising aspect of uh, you coming into this new territory for you? Things that you were saying, oh, it's like that, or oh, it's like that. You know, what what's been the biggest kind of shock or change or surprise? Um, well, I continue to be pretty amazed at how many good ideas are out there, right? And how many interesting ways people are thinking about solving problems that we may have already solved, right? But just tinkering it a bit and shifting it a bit to make it that much more compelling. So that that I find very exciting. Um, I think that probably the most surprising thing, like I'm an operating executive. I still sort of think about myself that way. So not having a number that a daily, monthly, hourly number that I'm <laughs> obsessing about and worrying about. I mean, I have a number. It's just my my span is a little longer. It's not a monthly, you know, I have a couple of years to hit the number or some years. Um, and I also, I mean, this is another thing that I find sort of funny. Um, I, I, you know, I come from an operating job where I would say, do this, like, let's do that. And then a whole bunch of very smart people would run off and go do it. And now I say, you should do that. We should do that. You should do that. And a lot of people are like, yeah. And then no one does it. So <laughs> that's a new experience. But it's cool too. It's learning. You know, it's sort of the other side of the equation. I joined some boards as well. That also has proven very interesting. It's sort of learning how to exercise a different muscle. It's a persuasion muscle versus a 
power muscle, if you will. You don't work for me, so you don't have to do what I say. Hmm. Um, but if I have a good idea, you know, I want to make sure you hear it for you to consider. And I no longer walk out of a board meeting or walk out of a meeting with a founder and think, oh, they're going to implement my ideas. I think the first couple of months I was like, oh, they're going to do that. And if they do what I told them, this will work and that'll work. And then now I sort of get that it's much more of a dialogue and, and way more up to them. So that, that took me a second. <laughs> Uh, well, let's let's talk about maybe uh, some of the kinds of companies. I, I, have you already started, you know, investments? Is it just you now that you got the money, you're starting to look at what kind of companies you're looking to to be a part of? So we've done some investments. We've done some some very cool investments in about five companies. Um, we we have an, an interesting take on how we do investments. Of course, the thesis is enterprise B two B SaaS. You know, we're, we're going to stick to that thesis more or less. Um, we have a little slush fund for things we think that are really interesting that are a little bit. Uh-oh. We lost you for a second. Okay. It looks like you're, I think you're back. We lost you for a second there. Yeah. Oh, we're looking for companies that are solving interesting problems or solving existing problems in interesting ways. Another big point for me and Malin is we, we want to invest in companies we know we can help. Right. And, and our premise is a little bit different in that we engage our community. We engage with the company. We really try to help them understand what are you doing in marketing? What are you doing in product? What's going on in sales? How are you thinking about legal? How are you know, we really because we all come from being operators, it's very important to us that we engage with companies that we believe have the right types of founders and the right types of teams to build the next generation of companies. So our due diligence process is standard like everyone else's. We look at all that stuff, but then we spend a lot of time thinking about the founder, the founding team, what they're trying to do, their willingness to be open to new sorts of things as far as how they create their teams and think about their culture. So it, it's um, it's fun, but it's more intense than I think you know the typical diligence process is perhaps because Malin and I spend so much time thinking about the company and, you know, would we want our LPs to work at that company? Would they want to work at that? You know, we think about it in multiple frameworks before we make the call. And so, and what, what are the other maybe differences between what you and Malin are doing and, you know, the, my, the traditional kind of investment places? Yeah. I mean, I think another big difference is this network, right? So we find ourselves in a situation, we were talking to one of our investors, uh, one of our investments and the head of engineering there, and he wanted to talk to someone who had really dealt with a complicated engineering problem that had a hardware component and a location component. And that became very easy for us to look in the network and find someone who's done just that, right? And, and hook them up, CTO of Lime, hook them up, have them chat. And, and he got a huge amount out of that because she understands something so complex and interesting that it made it very easy, or not easy, but he got a lot of advice from her. I mean, I find it myself. I get on the phone with the portfolio company for half an hour. And by the end of it, they're like, can we talk again? Can you tell me how you did that? Can you? And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Happy to. Happy to talk to you. But having the bench of LPs that we have really allows us. It's not like we have one head of marketing for them to talk to. We have five heads of marketing of the best companies in the Valley. It's not like we have one COO of a unicorn. We have five COOs of unicorns. So if they are conflicted out or if they're too busy or if they don't want to do it, that's okay. Cause we have another four people to go to that eventually we'll be able to chat to one of our portfolio companies and give them some advice that you can't buy. You just can't buy it. And you can't talk to those people. They're not, we're so busy. 
You know, the same was true for me at Salesforce. Like do my job, race home, try to be with my kids, take care of my aging parents, back online. You know, there just wasn't a lot of extra time to, to spend with founders, but we've created a model with Operator Collective where we can engage them and deploy them at, you know, how they want, but they get a lot of experience, not just, you know, not just investing, but also advising companies and thinking about how they might want to engage with them in the future. We, we've already seen like board seats come up, advisory roles come up, all of this stuff that we can offer back into our LP network. And some of them have been waiting for these types of opportunities for a long time. So it's a perfect match. One of the things, you know, you, you are looking for, you know, certain kind of companies in terms of just, you know, their potential, of course, but then you're also looking to expand opportunities for, uh, you know, folks that have been underrepresented or it's been more difficult for them to get the capital that they need. You know, what's the mix? What's the kind of, how do you make sure that you find the right companies that are, that will, with hope, become very successful in the future, but also leave the opportunity open, a little bit more open for companies that would traditionally be overlooked. You know, companies that are headed by women or, or uh, color folks that are, are underrepresented by, you know, they know where they are from a, a race or a color perspective. How do you balance that? And how do you make sure that you, you, you want to give the opportunities to the folks that don't necessarily get it, but you also want to make sure you're providing opportunities to the folks who really have a chance to succeed. Totally. Um, so that was that, that, that we talked about that a lot. Right. And so for us, one of the big differences in our fund was the thesis is we're getting more women and underrepresented minorities into investing. Right. And then the actual investments are just based on, the product, the team, the potential of the company. Now, our network is leaning towards that. We've already invested in two women-led companies out of the five. So, I mean, it, it, without even trying, it's happening candidly, which I love and which was sort of my dream that we wouldn't have, you know, there's still much to do, mind you, it, you know, there's no finish line in any of this, but um, so it is sort of happening naturally. And, but yeah, our thesis was not, a lot of funds are created with a thesis to invest in underrepresented minorities or women, which I think is wonderful and 100% support them. That is not our thesis per se. Our thesis is more women and underrepresented minorities need to be involved in the investing cycle. And I will tell you how we made that happen. So we were creating the fund, right? And we were raising money from all of these different LPs. Um, and we also got institutional money in the fund in the first round, in the first raise, which is almost unheard of and which Malin deserves full credit for. It was a Herculean effort and she did all of it. Um, but when we were creating the fund, there were some people I wanted in the fund. And quite frankly, you know, the initial sort of the median, the price everyone came in roughly at was around 200, 250 K, right, which is pretty high, pretty high. Um, and there was someone in particular that I really wanted in the fund and there was just no way she could come in at that. So Malin and I started talking and we created a scale, right? And it really was based on equal pay. No surprise. Um, so the idea being that not all of the people we want inside of the LP network would have been afforded the same opportunities as even us within the LP network. So we created a scale that took into account you know, years in job, promotional opportunities, promotional advancements, pay. And, and we talked to the people quite a bit. So we created a scale that let people join as LPs at 10K, which is incredibly, you know, most funds don't do that. It's not, it's, 
it's expensive to have that many people in the fund. But the whole idea of our fund was that we were creating one that would be inclusive and different for everyone. So we have folks in the fund that started at 10K and we have people that are well over, you know, a multi-million dollar investment. So we, we have a very wide range of LP. Um, we treat them all the same and no one knows how much anyone gave, right? It's not, that's not the game we play. Like only Malin and I really know that um, and our operating partner Ambrosia, but um, we did that because we felt that that would be the most equitable way to get as many people on the cap table and thinking about investing as we could with sort of the tools we had at our disposal. That's really cool. Uh, so then I guess what the net effect will be of this is you're going to be seeing people uh, a different makeup of the actual investors, not just a different makeup of the actual founders. And she just uh, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, like you know, that. having different types of like I get cap tables all the time now. You know, I look at these cap tables and I'm like, wow, they're all very homogeneous. Like I'm looking forward to a different looking cap table that has all kinds of names on it and all different. <laughs> not not Mike, Adam, Joe, John, Bob, like something else. Let's have a different name on that thing sometime, you know, um, but it's exciting and it is really. I think one of the most exciting things has been the reception from our LPs and from the Valley at large, but really from the, the, the LPs that joined our fund, these people that sort of put their money where their mouth was and engaged with us in this journey, um, as well as the founders who are letting us sort of engage in helping them create their companies. It's a very unique and awesome relationship. I, you know, I felt this on the App Exchange in the early days. Like mm. when App Exchange was about a year old and it was still very new, there was this energy underneath it. Like there's lots of things that needed to be fixed and lots of processes that needed to be put in place and all that. But there was sort of a, an energy, like a tide underneath the app exchange. And I could feel that something very different and very wild was happening. I feel that current with Operator Collective as well. Like something is changing again, which is very exciting to me. That's awesome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, pose a question that comes from Esteban. Um, how can we make the same impact in women at a younger age than those ready to raise capital? And he says he is asking for a friend, friend <laughs> with two daughters, age 14 and 17. Hmm, I wonder who that is. Anyway. <laughs> I bet I know. Um, it's a great question. And actually, you and I were chatting about this before we started the show. But um, so I, I joined the board of Girls Who Code this year as well, which is a great organization that sort of gets in at the elementary school level and follows girls all the way through high school with STEM and computer science projects and really encouraging them to flex their muscle around thinking about coding and thinking about their role and how computer science will evolve. So I believe that Girls Who Code is a great foundational element to get, to, to encourage girls to want to code. I was not encouraged to code. I wasn't even really encouraged to do hard math, mm. right? I was sort of like take econ. That's good enough. You know, that was sort of the message I got, um, which was the wrong message, right? right. I, I really wish I had gotten like, take hardcore accounting, stick with calculus. Like those would have been better messages than the ones I got. So an organization like Girls Who Code is setting up a different way of talking, right? A different way of thinking. So, you know, those girls don't think of themselves as investing in a lipstick company. They think of themselves as coding the next Google or whatever that huge aspirational goal may be. So I think Girls Who Code is a great um, sort of foundational element for younger girls and young women that are thinking about STEM and their role in it. Um, and right now we're working a lot with other universities like Cal, you know, Cal's engineering department, first woman dean 
Suche King Lu, she's a good friend of mine. She and I are also talking about, you know, the, the women that go into masters of engineering or engineering at Cal specifically, but at a lot of the different universities. How can we create more foundational framework inside of those colleges and disciplines to help those women sort of stick with it and feel supported all the way through the journey? So I am actually spending a lot of time on that. As sort of my personal time, I spend thinking about um, sort of the, the journey of the girl as she begins school all the way through. And it is very focused on girls because of girls who code. But I have found, at least in the work that I've done, that um, as we fight for women's and girls' rights, we fight for underrepresented minorities' rights at the same time, and that's how we're most effective. Um, it's not to say that everyone faces the same problem. I, I don't think women have it as tough as a lot of underrepresented minorities do, quite frankly, or the women that are underrepresented minorities have very, that's complicated and something I don't understand, although I try to think about it and I try to imagine what that must be like. But I think if we are conscious and thinking about the journey of the folks that are not in the minority ruling position inside this country and how we make that flow easier for everyone to access into, the more effective our culture and our companies will be. Uh you mentioned one stat that still, I don't know if we even talked about it before we were doing LinkedIn Live or not, but I, I'm still blown away by it. You said that you you did a survey of, of your uh, your partners and your folks at Oper Operator Collective and asked them how many of them had uh, sat on a board and or had even been, no, no, they- Invested. Had, right, elected. And you said like 75% of them hadn't. So it was 56% of them had never invested okay, right. and 75% had never been asked. So we said, never. they said, we've never invested. And when you look, you should go look at the website and look at who these people are. <laughs> um, it, it was pretty jarring. And to think that, I mean, I don't know, for me, I hadn't been asked for a long time either, right? So for me to see that statistic well, I mean, no wonder that everything is so homogeneous if we're not even asking other people to try. So, you know, it was very validating for both Malin and I. I mean, they were not good statistics. I was not happy. I wish that they had been different. But it also really did validate the thesis that if we don't change the people that are deciding which companies win, we're not going to change the types of companies that exist in this country right. so or around the world, for that matter. Okay, so let's look up. Uh, I'll say five years down the line, okay, because sometimes it feels like five years is a long time, it didn't, sometimes it doesn't. So I'll just say five years. What would be, what would uh, Operator Collective look like in terms of if it was a success? What would that look like in five years? Um, I think we'd have a deployed, you know, we'll, we'll invest in probably you know, between 14 and 16 companies. And, um, you know, we'll probably have deployed the round by then, potentially even raising another round or have raised another round that's contingent on a lot of things, of course. Um, what, what I think Operator Collective's success would look like is more of our LPs investing with us, but just in general, right? Like a, a, an increased comfort with deploying capital. I love my women friends so much, but man, are they shoving their money under the mattress. Like, no, 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 not under the mattress, out in the world, or some of it, you know, prudence, of course, but um, I'd like to see that. And then I would also like to see, uh, as importantly, if not more importantly, a stellar group of 15 new companies coming up with sort of a different value system and a different cultural bias and a way of, and, and not thinking about culture 
at the last minute when it's a problem, but from the beginning, we're kind of being very deliberate about the type of company they're creating and the values they are instilling in their employees and what they expect back and what they will give back. Um, Salesforce did this well. I was lucky. I grew up in a company where culture was, was paid attention to. I would like to see more companies doing that, solving awesome business problems, building amazing tech, crushing it for their customers, all of that, but also creating the kind of company where I want my children to work. And hopefully, uh, as all of that happens, you'll see those board number participation numbers change a bit, you know, and, and like you said, uh, you hopefully you'll see underrepresented you know, people of color uh, also start to you know, bubble up and, and be a part of this overall ecosystem, because this is probably the biggest wealth creation uh, you know, tool in, in the, at least the U.S., because real estate doesn't seem to be doing as well as it had been in the past but you look at some of these companies and how they can go from zero to like a, a billion dollar market cap in five years i mean or maybe even less in certain instances and if people of color and, and women are not participating at at least you know the the equivalent numbers to the population at least you get the falling further and further behind and that you know yeah and we can't let it happen we just can't like i mean it's, it's the way the world works. I'm not naive. I understand how the world works to some degree, but I guess I just don't accept that that's the way it's always going to work. And I do think we can change things. I think working for Mark Benioff taught me that. Like, I, if I care enough, I can change something. Maybe I can't change the world, but I can change my local world. I can change the world that's around me. And, you know, um, but I feel like we, I've been very lucky. I worked very hard, yes, but I've been very lucky. Like, I worked at a great company. I ordered a lot of ability to really stretch my muscles, not just business-wise, but around my ethics and my belief system. Um, I, I believe that that's what let me be so successful and gave me so much good insight into how to do more than just take care of myself, right? Which was certainly the early years of my career. It was all about me and you know, just, that's sort of the way you start out, but to really gain a broader sense of how, you know, the impact I can have on others and how much more important that is than anything I could do for myself. Um, I hope that more, I see more and more people in the Valley shifting that way. And I see more and more people understanding that just keeping it the way it was is not going to build the kind of world we want to live in for tomorrow. So I absolutely expect more women to be involved and more underrepresented minorities to be involved. And you know that that is the biggest part of this to some degree. That is why we're doing this, because we want to shift the way venture looks in a similar way that we shifted the way people talk about equal pay and tech. You know, I mean, quite frankly, no one was talking about this before we did that. You know, it just wasn't wow. wasn't a widely discussed thing. And Cindy and Mark and Salesforce, everyone deserves sense of credit for that. But um, I found that if you start talking about the thing that no one's talking about, eventually people start working on it. Okay, this has been great. One last question: What does Layla Seiko want for Christmas? <laughs> Equal pay. <laughs> <laughs> That is great. All right. Where can people go to learn more about all the things that we just talked about? So operatorcollective.com is our website. Please go there. Please sign up and become part of our community. Men, everyone. Um, one of the other things we're doing with this is we're creating community around our fund for people that want to learn more about investing, who are interested but aren't ready yet. We're going to offer educational courses like how to read a cap table how to do angel investing. So we're really, a lot of our energy is focused on making investing 
more accessible to everyone. So please go there, please sign up for our newsletter, please become part of the community because we will be offering a lot of these for free to the broader community just to get more people comfortable with how investing works and how they might play a role in that.